middle of a series on biblical manhood. Uh, and what the middle means, I'm not sure, but uh, we'll see how long this goes on. Uh, and last month, the uh, message was more on focused on the practical, the ramps on to the road to marriage and the difficult decisions and challenges after boys start to notice girls. Uh, today's message I would characterize as more aspirational and really is for those who wish to seek what I call God's best. Uh, much of this series could be described charitably as an exhortation, more it's a bashing of male heads to become men. Uh, I mentioned last week that we would address this month uh, what young men should be looking for in a future partner and the kind of woman that he should avoid. Uh, now, I've listed on the handout as a reference the Proverbs, which probably isn't terribly helpful, but there are simply too many to list at the top. And we first need to talk about some things on how we apply the Proverbs. First, they are just that. They are proverbs. They're not laws, not commands generally, and they're not guaranteed promises, but they're wisdom of general truth. And the proverbs focus on consequences, which clearly reveal God's design and attitude about righteousness and sin. So applying these general truths gets us to our attitude, or our willingness to be in sync with God's attitude, or what, again, we call God's best. And with these proverbial truths, uh, they're often uh, presented in terms of specific circumstances or a person rather than a general uh, category. So when a proverb talks about fathers speaking to sons, it doesn't exclude fathers speaking to daughters or mothers speaking to sons or daughters at all. Uh, and there's an exception for certain situations when the context uh, points out a specific group, like the evil or the righteous, or men or women. Uh, now, because we are unabashedly searching the wisdom of the word, this message will be a bit more graphic because God's word does not pull punches. It's not politically correct, especially when it comes to sin. Uh, we're going to deal a, a lot with the negative in this message, uh, societal practices and trends that take the young off the road to marriage or, and some potholes that make it more difficult to travel down that road. But therefore, let's start with some positives, the kind of woman a young man should seek before we address the kind to avoid and other obstacles to biblical marriage by men and women who want to find God's best for their lives and their families. I think I mentioned last week that I've described Christy as a catch for a guy like me who did not benefit from a whole lot of wisdom at the time. She's clearly a gift from God to me. So, and if you want to avoid big problems and learn the character of that kind of woman with whom to get hitched, you could do far, far worse than to start with the Proverbs, and particularly Proverbs 31. Now, this passage is uh, not only a source of feminine virtue, but gives a good picture of the 
ideal woman. I say ideal because that's what the passage appears to describe, much like how we're trying to describe the biblical man. We know that we're all broken. We've all got blind spots here and there, and we all need the Holy Spirit to guide us into what God wants us to be. And young men should never expect perfection, but this list does provide us with the qualities for which to look if you are wise. In fact, the passage states specifically, an excellent wife who can find. And this passage describes the great gift of a noble woman. And to know these qualities will help the young man in his attempt to be the kind of man that will attract this kind of woman. And that's what we're trying to address in this series overall. Now, that, this passage could be a message in itself. So we're just going to hit some of the high points before we address some of the low points of certain females. Uh, it's important enough that I've copied it out on your handout, and it would be helpful if you looked at these at this passage as we go through these in just a minute. Uh, and I'll, this passage is clearly talking about a married woman, a wife. Yet, surprise, not all women are married. Uh, these qualities, like those for males, should be developing as females mature so that when the time comes, each will be in the best position to possess and exercise those qualities within marriage. There's other qualities of a virtuous wife that we'll touch upon later when we talk about marriage, married men, but here uh, you can read some of the qualities for which girls should prepare and strive as they approach womanhood along the, the road to matrimony and for which young men should be looking. So, this also gives parents an idea of what it means to train up a child in the way that he or she should go so that when they are married, departure from that nature of godliness will be less likely. So let's get into it starting in Proverbs 31, verse 11. If you can look at it, she is trustworthy. She regularly demonstrates faithfulness, not just by uh, uh, to, her, to her future husband. And so he'll be able to delegate responsibilities to her. Verse 12, we've discussed before, she does her husband good all the days of her life, not just by saving herself for him, but by preparing herself to be wholly committed and one with him to form a family. Verses 14 and 15, she cares about her family, so she learns how to prepare uh, good and economical nutrition while in her parents' household. Uh, verse 16, she's learning skills that will help support her family. Verse 17, she keeps herself physically fit so that she may continue to serve within her own future household. Verse 20 and 21, she has a heart for, she cares about, and she ministers to the poor and the vulnerable. Verse 23, you know, the reputation of a man with whom she becomes one in the future will be based not only on his character, but upon hers as well. In other words, the character she develops while maturing will shine beyond her outward beauty so that one day she will be, as Proverbs 12 calls her, the crown of her husband. She will learn to help him to live faithfully and to bring him visible public honor. Verse 25, 
Her character is described as strength and dignity. She will learn to have a meek and quiet spirit while in the home, but she is not a doormat. Verse 26, she learns to speak with both wisdom and kindness. Verse 28, it will appear to others that someday her children and her husband will love and praise her. Finally, the recurring theme, the thread throughout this passage is that she works hard. She demonstrates in her young life the character and commitment to labor for her future family. And so, for all this, verse 31, she will be praised. Hey, ladies, got all that down? No problem, right? Well, I suspect that some of you have come very, very close. Uh, but perfection, probably not. In fact, this passage itself describes this woman as a sort of superwoman. Verse 29 says, many women have done excellently, many, but you, this ideal woman, surpass them all. So ladies, please understand that in our discussion of the biblical man, just as you might feel like you don't measure up to the Proverbs 31 woman, none of us truly measure up to what a truly godly biblical man is, uh, um, among whom I am least. But nevertheless, this and other passages are there for a reason. These and other passages calls us in our respective roles to what we should seek. They're, these are goals for which we should all aspire. Proverbs 31 is simply a pattern for imitation for all women. Another general quality of a godly woman we see in the Proverbs is edification. We get the word edifice or building from that. And Proverbs 14 says, the wisest of women builds her house. Now, we're not talking about construction skills here, although that would be a, a nice added benefit for any husband. She's, but she's always looking to strengthen, to build up her family scripturally, spiritually, relationally, physically, and in health. She works with her husband and contributes a vital part in the making of a strong family. Although her husband and family are not perfect, she is careful not to tear it down by her comments or her actions. Now, you probably all know that the world looks at the biblical model and comes up with this idea of the good wife with a jaded eye. Uh, you remember seeing you know, pictures and characterizations on TV of the model 1950s wife who spends her whole day baking cookies and when the man comes home, she is in a beautiful dress, her hair's perfect with makeup and she's got a hot meal waiting for her knight in shining armor, right? This is what has been dubbed the traditional wife. Now there's nothing wrong with this wife, but the traditional wife is not the same as a biblical wife. This may come as a shock to somebody, but if we look at Proverbs 31 honestly, we can see that this passage does not say that a woman's place is in the home. 
In fact, it denies that common caricature of the Christian traditional wife. The virtuous woman is engaged in many, many pursuits and ministries. However, a passage, this passage clearly affirms that her priority is the home. As mentioned in the previous message, hopefully she will see her husband as the head of the home and he will see her as the heart of the home. And the church and the world will see them both as one. This is not inconsistent with Titus 2, which states that women are to be taught to be keepers at home. It simply fills out what it means to be a virtuous keeper at home. Uh, speaking of Titus 2, one of the reasons I am focusing on what makes a biblical man is that I am not a woman. Hopefully that's obvious. I don't think that disqualifies me from trying to explain what I think the Bible says about women in general, but I think it does leave the details about how to be a godly woman to those with first-hand experience. Titus 2 instructs older women to teach younger women, and I encourage the younger women here to seek out older women with their wisdom and experience, sit down for some coffee, and have a conversation about the topic. I encourage older women to actually offer to help because sometimes the younger women are intimidated by you. We've heard this a number of times, how people are intimidated by Christy. How could you homeschool 11 kids for four decades and, and maintain your sanity? Well, the reality is we didn't, okay? We, we, we maintained, we, we made more mistakes than most people do. But that's where her wisdom comes from, from the mistakes that I made as the, the head of the household. Okay, there's a question here. What is a younger woman? Well, it's a relative term, okay? Uh, given that we're all learning, God's not finished with any of us yet, please don't put an age limit on this. Women and men, single or married, we can all learn from the wisdom of the more experienced, including from the stumbling and the failures of those farther down the road. There's a saying that says, learning from the mistakes of others is the cheapest education you will ever get. Okay, now it's time to turn to the kind of woman of which young men should steer clear. Now we're not talking about yellow warning flags here, we're talking about red flags. Again, we turn to the Proverbs. Uh, and in the Proverbs, these women who take the other path bring severe damage to themselves and others. In fact, they are called the path to death. The most obvious would be the forbidden, seductive, immoral, adulterous, or strange woman, depending on your Bible version. Uh, and in Proverbs 30, this kind of woman is graphically described. This is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. Now, we use the word pothole for our analogy uh, of being on the road to matrimony, and it could be argued that this is more like a sinkhole or a pit. In fact, Proverbs 22 says, the mouth of a forbidden woman is a deep pit. He with whom the Lord is angry will fall into it. Don't know what that means, but I think we need to steer clear. Young men are especially vulnerable to this woman. Uh, Proverbs 6 warns, that she looks good. 
Do not desire her beauty in your heart. Do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. Now, ladies, no, this Bible does not say that beauty and sin are synonymous, okay? It just says that this woman uses her beauty to entice men to sin. Proverbs 5 tells us that she sounds good, for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. So when you combine the hormonal drive of a young man with the beauty of a young woman who's seeking his attention with flattery or flirting, that young man often will find himself stuck in a huge pit or something worse. Proverbs 5 goes on to say, however, her end is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to the place of death. Now, yeah, I think a legitimate question is, why would a young woman allow herself to be a man trap simply to gratify his desires being used, if not abused, by a man? Proverbs 6 gives us an idea here. Proverbs 5, verse 6, she does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not even know it. Now, somehow she's been blinded to the hurt if not the destruction she'll bring not only upon her, the young man, but upon herself. Looking back, one possible genesis of this lifestyle would be an absent father or one that did not show her affection as she was growing up, or maybe even something worse, maybe even abuse. Proverbs 6 tells us that the man who gets involved with this woman sexually lacks understanding and destroys his own soul. Kind of serious. And Proverbs 2 sums it up by exhorting the young man to be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress, with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth, forgets the covenant of her God, for her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. And we often talk about how you can make all kinds of mistakes and still be redeemed, and that's true. It doesn't mean that you're not going to suffer consequences down the road, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, and otherwise. Okay, moving on. At some great risk of offense, uh, we must mention another woman to avoid, because the Bible does. A very famous late radio host used to refer to modern feminists with various derogatory terms, and the National Organization of Women, or NOW, as the National Association of Gals. Did you get that? Okay. However, as demeaning as that may have been, uh, young men should be looking out for this red flag as well. The proverb explains that she might be one of these strange or foolish women that we've just addressed. Uh, Proverbs 9 says the, the woman folly is loud. She's seductive and she knows nothing. You know, blondes get a bad rap here, okay? Uh, it may also just be a spoiled woman who always had to have and always got her way when she grew up. Uh, Proverbs 21 tells that it is better to live in the corner of a housetop or even in the desert than with a quarrelsome and a fretful woman. Proverbs 27 describes her in less than complimentary fashion. 
a continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. To restrain her is to restrain the wind or to grasp oil in one's right hand. Now, on the one hand, a wife is to be her husband's co-counsel as they are one. In fact, sons are told to heed not just the father, but also mom. Proverbs 6 says, My son, keep your father's commandment. Forsake not the teaching of your mother, for the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching is a light. Counsel from dad and mom work best together. It's hard to have a light without a lamp, and a lamp without a light isn't a whole lot of good. We discussed earlier how that when boys become teens, more and more they do not like to be bossed around by their mothers. Sometimes mom's orders are necessary, but should not be the rule as they grow older. Now, the line between good counsel and being quarrelsome may be difficult to see, but I mention it here not just for young men to try to get an idea of what what to look for in possible mates before it's too late, but for young ladies to be aware and to avoid becoming a quarrelsome woman. Proverbs 19 helps us understand that family life can be painful. Some wives can be a great burden to their husbands. Some husbands can be a great burden to their wives. Uh, Proverbs 19 says, A foolish son is ruined to his father, and a wife's quarreling is a continual dripping of rain. House and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Now, a leaky roof is not just a minor irritation. It's a source of structural damage, and left unattended, it can lead to the house becoming uninhabitable. So a quarrelsome woman or man can ruin a household. In contrast, we might inherit a house or wealth from parents in the ordinary course of life, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. In other words, a godly wife is an invaluable gift to a man and she manages her household so well that she increases those inherited assets. She is truly a sign of great favor. Now, one might point out that it may be difficult to anticipate exactly what a mate will be before marriage. You know, the quarrelsome woman might be identifiable by her demeanor during courtship, clearly. If the young woman or the young man is constantly complaining or displays a controlling or a a critical spirit, it's probably wise to steer clear or at least hold off for some serious talks about this issue before proceeding. Jesus warned in Matthew 15, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and defiles that person. For out of the mouth come evil thoughts. And Proverbs 26 says, as charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man or woman for kindling strife. But maybe you don't see it. You know, just as a young man may maintain a a flat stomach and squelch the belts before the wedding, so a young woman might be all smiles and twittering eyes before embarking on the grind of day-to-day life with her new husband. So some have used this uncertainty as a rationale or excuse for trial runs. And before we get into that, let me just say that one may get a glimpse of the nature of a future wife by looking at her mother or a future husband by looking at his father. 
It's likely that the possible life partner has picked up much by example from the same-sex parent. Now, let me just warn here, this is not an infallible measure. If you handle it correctly, it can be a tool. I mentioned that both Christie's mom and my dad had some serious issues. So we tried to use these weaknesses as warnings about what might happen in our lives through our own inherited weaknesses. Certainly, if one is confronted about these faults, he or she could wake up, confess, deal with it, and, and be quite happy there, thereafter. So for those approaching marriage, any weaknesses or character faults in the future in-laws, whether patent or latent, should be fully disclosed and get them out on the table uh, and wrestle with those tendencies in premarital, if not pre-engagement counseling, and how you're going to deal with that if it pops up again. Uh, let's move our focus back to guys. Let's talk about some of the possible obstacles or even exits off the road to matrimony. Uh, we see them today as trends or tendencies prevalent in males that become distractions to marriage. The first is an age-old problem that has simply become normal in our culture. I just referred to trial runs or test drives, which the culture may call shacking up or cohabitation. Now, let's first deal with the exceptions. Over the years in my practice, I've run into a few couples who never had a wedding ceremony. They never had a preacher who, who joined them together. They never had a piece of paper called a marriage certificate. Yet they have been together for decades and have multiple children together. Nobody knows that they're, they didn't get married the traditional way. We need to understand that the Bible focuses on substance over form. In marriage, this means more than a piece of paper. It's a legally binding commitment and a biblical covenant. Yes, we find process and formality in the Bible, like betrothal and the groom coming for his bride and the wedding feast, but we have innumerable references to simply taking a wife, whatever that meant. In fact, in many states like Kansas, we have what is called common law marriage. When a couple is eligible legally to marry, they consider themselves married, and they publicly hold themselves out as marriage, and there's no minimum period of cohabitation. The legal effect is that if there is a problem of falling apart, a spouse may be entitled to not just child support, but also spousal support in some cases, even though they never got a marriage license or certificate. In fact, at least in some cases, this is not shacking up, but commitment and a marriage in substance, if not in cultural form. Uh, the problem with common law marriage is that because there is no piece of paper to memorialize it and make it clear, if conflicts arise, you know, the, 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 the wife may have been say, introducing this guy as her husband for, for years and years, and the guy is passive, and he goes, uh, whatever makes you happy, honey. You know, and when the time comes there's a problem, uh, he decides, no, we were never married. Well, in those situations, he could be very likely, and she could be very likely, putting the, the question of their responsibilities and rights in the hands of a judge. Another reality about 
shacking up is that 99 times out of 100, it is for the convenience, enjoyment, and pleasure of the guy. Any man who alleges otherwise, 99 times out of 10, is lying to you. Proverbs 20 says, many a man proclaims his steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find. Ladies, I in this verse are not saying you can never trust a man, but talk is cheap. I am saying that you should never trust a man who says he loves you and suggests that you shack up. Now, the gal may genuinely believe that it makes sense to take the test drive and the guy will gladly nod in agreement. Yeah. I'm reminded of a movie that I saw, I think it was last summer uh, at the, what is it, the, the, the outdoor thing downtown, happened to be shown that night, called Mrs. Doubtfire. Okay? And uh, Mrs. Doubtfire is a guy who gets a divorce and he's cut off from his visitation for some reason. So he dresses up as this grandmotherly nanny and gets hired by his ex to take care of the kids while she works. And she is so wise that the ex confides in her to ask what she thinks about her shacking up with a guy that she's got some interest in. And he looks at her and goes, if you get the milk for free, why buy the cow? Pick it up here in a minute. <laughs> um, the guy who wants the free milk is not thinking commitment. He's exactly the kind of guy you never want to link up with. Now, a test drive of a car makes perfect sense. But let's take a look at the basic premise that a test drive of a marriage-like relationship is likewise wise. First, cohabitation, shacking up, and opposite sex roommate or space sharing are euphemisms or nice ways to say extended fornication and therefore sin, according to the Bible. If you're not sure about this, you can check out one of the many passages or all the passages there on your handout about this particular question. Now, that should settle the matter. But in our culture, biblical clarity and understanding does not reign in the hearts of many, young or old. One cannot assume that a young person in church understands and accepts that. So this will not anchor all and certainly not many today. It is so normalized today that older people, after they've divorced, who should know better will often make light of it. Christy and I have been to our reunions. We've had, we've had people come up that we used to know and were good friends with, with their partner, they'd, and they would smile and say, yes, and we've been living in sin. You know, it's a joke to them, literally. It is so normal. Uh, the incidence of cohabitation has literally skyrocketed. Census data tells us that between 1960 and 1970, the number of unmarried cohabiting couples in the United States hovered around half a million stayed there. Then the numbers on the chart started to go up, way up. One factor certainly could have been the sexual revolution, which rejected biblical values in relationship. In fact, that's what the leaders of the movement and the abortionists who had a lot to gain and Hugh Hefner, founder of Playboy, explicitly stated that was their goal. But I think an even greater factor was the passage in most states of what we call no-fault divorce in the 70s. 
In the 2000 census, the number of unmarried couples uh, living together increased tenfold from before, and it looks like it now stands at about 9 million such unmarried opposite-sex cohabitants. Now, again, with no-fault divorce, all one party has to allege is incompatibility and the marriage bond, which both of them vowed to keep until death, is legally severed. More and more children saw their parents going through this traumatic process, and those children became collateral damage. So when the kids come of age, they were much more hesitant to make a commitment to marriage. A test drive, therefore, seems like a logical thing to do to see if we're compatible. Now, we have had decades of experience with cohabitation and many studies of that approach. So the question for those who are presently cohabitating or contemplate that approach is this. Do facts matter? If they do, we got them. The multiple studies show that couples who live together without the commitment of marriage suffer far more than married couples by all measures. This is also true of the children born into that household. Even those who take the test drive and then later married suffer a much higher rate of marriage failure. Now, I can't get into the specifics here because of time, but you can read all about it in detail in a well-researched book here by Glenn Stanton. I think it's referenced on your handout. The Ring Makes All the Difference. The book cites several dozen studies to confirm the facts. Now, in our culture, temptation often makes God irrelevant in the minds of young and old. It's like trying to convince somebody that they need Jesus when they don't believe in the existence of God. You're not going to get very far until you deal with that issue first. So, if someone you love is in this kind of relationship and sees nothing wrong with it, or they're thinking about it, this book might be helpful to give them the facts and of what, about what, they, what seems to be a logical step if facts are important to that loved one. In our class with uh, high schoolers, we ask a question. In our, it's about apologetics and evangelism. And we say, if I could show you evidence that proves to you that God exists, or that Jesus is God, or in this case, that a test drive relationship is a really bad idea, would you believe it? And of course, if they say yes, you want to give them the facts. Uh, but if they say no, then you know it's not a head issue, it's a heart issue. What they're essentially saying is, this is what I believe and what I want to do. Please don't confuse or bother me with the facts. Once again, social science, uh, one of the sciences, confirms what the Bible says. When you don't do it God's way, you suffer consequences. I want to wrap up with an introduction, just an introduction to a topic that hopefully we'll return to next month, which deals with the nature of many modern males. You know that confusion reigns in the culture. Many males are totally confused. Historically, men and women have been distinguished not only by anatomy, biology, and roles, but also by nature or tendencies. For example, those in the know often state that men tend to be more aggressive than women. 
which is borne out in the disproportionate rate of violent crimes. It's like 90 or 95 percent of violent crimes are committed by men. Uh, men tend to be more analytical, women more emotional. This in no way implies that women do not analyze or that men do not cry. They're just relative tendencies that are more characteristic of one than the other. Men have always tended to be the initiators in relationships with women. Uh, and, uh, some of the younger women may say this has also been a problem for them. But nonetheless, this is consistent with the biblical role of leadership. Several factors have resulted in the tendency in our culture among men today away from initiative and toward passivity, which we have labeled toxic passivity. And this is best illustrated by the caricature of the 30-something male who spends his time playing video games in his parents' basement, coming up only for meals and other basic necessities. Uh, left unchecked, this passivity can become debilitating. One broad metric of this tendency is the hesitancy to make a commitment to a woman for life. Again, the consequences of no-fault divorce likely play a role here. The average age of marriage for young men 100 years ago was 24. Today, it is 29. Now, something's going on here. Uh, now, this topic is sort of under the surface. It's like an iceberg in our culture, including within Christendom. Now, we've already said that the macho man is not the biblical man. What about a nice guy who's just quiet, you know, and, you know, maybe even polite, but he can't make a decision about life and take action? All I'm going to hope to do today is introduce this topic, and hopefully next month, Lord willing, we'll plan to go into more detail about dealing with passivity in order to not only get to the wedding, but avoid passivity throughout marriage. So speaking in general terms right now, some basic steps for men to struggle, who struggle with this, would be first, to develop a biblical mindset for action. You know, the mindset of a man makes a huge difference in how he preserve, per perceives his circumstances. Peter exhorts us to prepare our minds for action. Being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul uses three analogies in his exhortation to his spiritual son, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 2. There it says, share in suffering as a good soldier for Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Now, first of all, in order to be a soldier for Christ, you must first know your commander. You must set your hope and trust fully on him. That starts with what we started with the series with, humility. The humility to admit that you're a sinner cannot save yourself. And by recognizing your desperate need for a redeemer to pay for your sins, the God-man, Christ Jesus. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
without the sacrifice of that perfect man, none of this makes any sense. Secondly, think over and set your mind on God-honoring expectations. Paul exhorts us to think over this matter and to engage in setting those expectations. What we expect shapes how we respond. If we expect rest, we will resent having to fight. If we expect leisure, we will resent having to work hard. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, and those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit, Romans 8. Paul tells us that the enemies of Christ glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things, Philippians 3. But we are to set our minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. A soldier expects to suffer the rigors and the dangers of war. A civilian does not. An athlete expects to exercise self-control in all things in order to win the prize. A spectator does not. A farmer expects to work hard for long hours over many months in all kinds of weather to realize a harvest. A grocery shopper does not. Civilians are passive during war. Spectators are passive during competition. And an average consumer is passive during the growing season. As Christians, we are not to be called to be passive, but rather we are to prepare our minds for action. So when we lose our perspective, we forget our current culture, in our current culture, that we should expect opposition as if in war. We should expect, not, not that, but not peace. We should expect to need self-control, not indulgent rest. We should expect that winning others to Christ will be difficult, a difficult harvest, not easy picking of low-hanging fruit. But frequently our emotions are fueled by misplaced expectations and what we need to do is reset our minds. So men, ask yourself, what do you expect? What is your mind set on? Are you a soldier or a civilian, an athlete or a participant, an ex-spectator? Are you a hardworking farmer or just a consumer? Think it over. For Paul says, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Finally, lay aside the weight of passivity. Passive soldier, when he's on watch, will fail to protect his fellow soldiers and even himself. A passive farmer will not be fruitful. Passivity weighs an athlete down, so the author of Hebrews exhorts us to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance that is set before us in Hebrews 12. Now, the original readers of, of the epistle of Hebrews were weary, disillusioned, and disappointed because they had lost perspective and forgotten who they were. Today, we kind of take for granted our affluence, our riches in America. So there's a tendency for us as men, old and young, to have emotions that arise from expectations of rest, pleasure, leisure. This causes us to seek the easy way, essentially to be coddled. But the Bible does not coddle us. It confronts us and calls us to be men of action, not passivity. Now, to some more sensitive Christians, this may seem harsh. 
but we should see this as kind, not cruel. Because such expectations are weights to be discarded, not desires to be indulged. Proverbs 27 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse or many are the kisses of an enemy. Now these wounds are not physical. They're rather caring confrontations to reveal character flaws and uncover blind spots. The friend who turns his blind eye to your weaknesses may just be a deceitful enemy. So young men, please take note. If another comes to you about a problem, this applies to older men as well, comes to you with a problem in your life, you know there is a true friend. Listen attentively with humility to him or her. Now, if you're not a young man, which is most of us, but you know a young man who is your son, grandson, brother, good friend, or boyfriend, my hope is that you'll come back or after the camp out, you'll listen to the message next month and consider how you might encourage that young man to seek biblical manhood even if it means that you hurt his pride a little bit with faithful wounds. If you'd stand, we'll, uh, we've got a verse here that we'll end up with. All right, together. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord.